Welcome to broadcast number 84 of Indie Radio. Indie Radio is an indie game development talk show that airs bi-weekly on Saturdays at noon U.S. Central Time to help you keep up with the ever-evolving world of indie game development, debate about issues in the indie game scene, and to let you into the mind of some of the most interesting people behind the creation of indie games. Today is August 11th, 2018, and I'll be your host, Brett Hudson, broadcasting live from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'll be your co-host, broadcasting from uh, Toronto, Ontario, in Canada, Ian. And we have Jerry Bellick with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm Jerry Bellick. I am broadcasting from Oxford, Ohio. Um, yeah, by uh, Miami University, which is where I am a professor of game design. Hmm. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of people decide to you know go out to Miami in, uh, on vacation. Mi- Miami, Ohio, in particular. Yeah, I don't even know if there is a Miami, Ohio. Oh, it's just called Miami University? Yeah, in Oxford. Okay, that that works. (laughs) The whole thing was just a massive bait and switch. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. Hey, you you want to teach in Miami? And I was like, I don't know, sounds kind of scuzzy, but it's in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Not not making a case. So our show is typically split into two sections. First, we do a new segment, and then after the news, we jump into our interview. Uh, And today we have two uh, news topics. The first one is Game Maker Studio 2 now has a Nintendo Switch export that has just gone into open beta. So users of the game engine can now uh, sign up, so long as they are also a Nintendo developer. They can sign up for the beta and start, you know, exporting games to switch which is i mean to me probably the coolest thing ever uh being able to have a game on the switch i i know a lot of people um like uh noel berry uh have put online that it's been just magical putting stuff on the switch and this right here is just the coolest thing um right now they have uh i believe over a thousand developers that are interested and uh if you want to sign up you can go to uh, the Yu Yu Games blog, and uh, they have instructions on how to go about doing it, which involves going to a page on Nintendo's developer portal, registering, and then you do have to purchase a license. There are two licenses available. There's the Nintendo Switch license, which is uh, $800, or there's the Ultimate license, which is $1,500, which also includes exports for um, all the other platforms, you know, Windows, Mac, iOS, Android, PS4, um, Xbox. I, there's probably a few more, uh, but those are the ones I know off the top of my head. So uh, if you're interested, go check it out. It seems like a really cool uh, opportunity to uh, be ahead of the curve a little bit um, if you're a game maker developer. Otherwise, the full uh, export is supposed to be released in September, so in about a month, it'll be available for everybody who is a Nintendo developer and able to afford a license. Otherwise, huh? Oh, afford being the operative word, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's a little pricey, but at the same time, like it kind of makes sense. But I, I definitely oh, no, think it's, I, I am very genuinely excited about. Uh... Yeah, switch switch export being an option. Yeah, the ultimate license is obviously the the better choice because uh, then you also get all the other platforms. 
Um, well, see, actually, so. I don't. I don't think that's what that ultimate license is necessarily for. Like, because you can purchase license for, you know, Mac, PC, mobile, and all that, and those are permanent licenses. The ultimate, I mean, it maybe it does include the other things, but I believe oh, what it's right. doing for you is it's giving you access to all of the console platforms for a 12-month period. So you get Xbox, you get Switch, you get PS4, whatever, uh, whichever mm -hmm. they have. Uh, but it's still a you know ticking ticking clock. No, you're right. I forgot to to mention that um, both of the licenses are yeah the ultimate and then also the Nintendo license are 12 yeah. months. So you got to renew them every year. Which, which for most indies, uh, going multi-platform sounds like a really great idea. I mean, it, <laughs> it is in the long run, but you're not going to do it in a year, my friends. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe focus on one, and if that one goes okay, then then go nuts. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Uh, also in news today, uh, Discord is launching a uh, games page. So apparently, they're taking on Steam. You know, they've already they've already killed Skype. Um, and they've definitely diminished uh, TeamSpeak. So now Steam's the next one on their on their kill list. Um, which means that Discord is yet another place to buy games along with, I mean, let, let's list them off. There's Steam, GOG, Humble Bundle, Game Jolt Marketplace, Itch.io. Um, how many others are there? Uh, Cartridge is a new one. Oh, right, Cartridge. Yep, Cartridge is coming out soon. I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I, I'm really, really psyched to see what Cartridge is. But yeah, apparently Discord's trying to get into the space as well, which I not I'm not sure Discord is a place where I where I would think to go to buy games. Just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go buy it on Discord. Yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting. I mean, it, at the very least, right now, I'm just happy that people are taking stabs at it at all mm -hmm. <laughs> because Steam is it's becoming problematic. I mean, <laughs> becoming as if it's a new thing that it's that it's problematic. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see uh, this come to life soon, and um, you know, be become an actual platform where people do uh, publish their games. Uh, I I don't know too much about what their what the list of plans is, um, but hopefully in the coming weeks we'll see a bit more information about this. Well, also, oh. didn't they uh, didn't they just release an update where you can do kind of a Steam overlay type thing with Discord now or something like that? Did they? I believe I... they just did like in the past week or two, uh, if I saw it correctly. But so they're they're trying to really <laughs> pretty directly uh, usurp <laughs> Valve there. It looks like so it'll be interesting. So you, you you're talking like an overlay that would solo yeah, like uh, in game overlay Discord yeah stuff basically right okay well that actually makes a lot of sense. Okay. Now, now, see. Once you mention that, now I can see why this would work. Um, and it also makes me wonder. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to test it right now, but I have a feeling that that's probably not the best idea. <laughs> uh, but they do have a quick launcher um, in Discord that has detected some of the games that are on my hard drive. Um, and I wonder if the overlay would then apply to those games as well. Um, interesting. Hmm. Because that, I think that that would be the. I mean, this this is my opinion, but I think that that would be the best idea, 
because then regardless of if you purchase them on Discord or not, you still have access to your chat via an overlay. Um, because the thing is, like, people already have all these games on other platforms. So to completely switch over at this point is basically impossible. Yeah. Unless you repurchase everything, which is ridiculous. Yay! Woo! <laughs> you save I, files. I just keep earning money, and I don't know what to do. So <laughs> if I could just keep rebuying every game I've ever bought over and over help again. help a lot, yeah. <laughs> but I've only bought, like, Journey four or five times. And... <laughs> only? Yeah. I'm slipping. <laughs> I should pre-order it on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pre-order it for PS5. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the first thing that I want to bring up is the Nintendo Switch. Um, and we, we can kind of stray away from indie games for a second. Um, I mean, it'll still kind of be in there. But what have you been playing recently on Switch? Ooh, uh, I just got Picross 2. Okay. Which <laughs> I was really excited about. I haven't played Picross since DS early days. And um, a good friend of mine was over, Robin Baumgartner, uh, who also okay. does like a lot of alt control things. Uh, but he was playing Picross, and I got jealous, so I looked it up. And it was the day before they were releasing the second one. So <laughs> it became 24 hours of frustration where I wasn't sure, does the new one have all of the previous one's puzzles plus new stuff? So do I need to wait? And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a hard day. But <laughs> next day I did buy Picross 2. I do believe it's just completely different puzzles, which, which makes sense. Um, so people can just kind of keep going along. Because it's like a crossword, right? Like you, It's just something you sit and you do and uh, makes your brain happy. Um, so I've actually really been enjoying that. And it's, I mean, Nintendo is the king of wonderfully calm elevator music. So... <laughs> I, it's actually been just a really like nice way to chill and either sit on my couch and have it absurdly huge on a TV, uh, mm -hmm. or just kind of sitting around playing it. So, uh, so yeah, I'd actually recommend that there's there's a new one out for people that either already enjoyed it or um, are curious. But uh, I really like it. Uh, let's see. I was playing a lot of Enter the Gungeon on Switch uh, again since Robin was over, uh, which was. It, to me, that's such a better game with somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing, and like, it's probably completely against the spirit of it, and I'm sure it would make lots of fans very annoyed, but the only thing about that game is I just wish there was a mode where you could just be like, you know what, maybe I do want a couple of lives and not be miserable and never get past <laughs> like, the first two areas of the game, because I don't get to play it all that often, and I just want to see more of it, but I think that's kind of a. I mean, the last couple of years hasn't that. I feel like that's come up a number of times of just the idea of the tourist mode of games or uh, giving people a bit more freedom in in how they play it and like the difficulty and all that kind of stuff. Definitely, and and going off of that, I, I'm curious: Have you uh, played Celeste yet? Ah, yes, actually, uh, I did. I did buy Celeste and. and I haven't played it in a number of weeks just because of other things, but that was one I was really on the fence about uh, because I don't oh, really I don't love playing really really hard platformy games generally because they they usually just have just enough frustration 
where if I like because I just don't get to play games as often as I'd like so when I do like if I feel like I'm starting over every time uh, it, I get really frustrated and I just kind of drop it uh, so I talked to a number of people about it and I was just like I don't know because of course like I needed a quorum to decide if I should buy <laughs> like this one game um, and after we all like met and you know read the meetings of our previous quorum for another game I'm sure I agonized over buying um, I did just say goodbye uh, if anything just to kind of support it because I, I heard there was a lot of great narrative element to it which I found very mm -hmm. interesting um, they also uh, you know do a great job at I mean, it, it's it's just such a simple thing, like letting you start over quickly. I mean, Meat Boy, you know, obviously was in, in some ways kind of the master at that, where it's just instantly back in a place. So you, it doesn't give you the time to just say, uh, screw it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, oh, here's a question. Is bad if I swear? I mean, I don't, not that I want to like talk like a sailor, <laughs> but... It, it, it's it's probably gonna happen yeah um, you know we we usually say or we like our we have an unwritten your best. but i mean i i just figure at some point we should just mark all of our stuff explicit on itunes yeah. just just in case I'll, I'll do my best i haven't yet so that's Go. that's a win uh <laughs> so it, i've actually been really enjoying celeste it's it does like start to approach that ceiling of where i'm like okay i'm getting a little like, I'm having trouble with this, and part of that's my fault. I get very obsessive about uh, things like the, what are the, the strawberries. Mm -hmm. uh, but this game uh, actually did something I've never experienced in a game where it actually, like, it felt like it was addressing me personally and saying, hey, shh, shh, it's okay. You don't have to get the strawberries. <laughs> it's okay. Like, if you get it, great, get a strawberry. Like, go for it. You you give it your all, but you don't have to, and you don't have to feel bad about it. And I, I really like that. Like, it, it's just kind of acknowledging that there are different kinds of people that play these games, and for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have kind of an obsessive personality, and that can be both, like, very useful in some cases, but also really detrimental and can quickly turn playing a game from something fun and relaxing and a bit of escape to a torturous, repetitive like <laughs> job that I never asked to like do. So I, I, I am actually enjoying Celeste and I'm working my way through. It's it's probably the one I've been playing the most on like flights. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think the the last time I played it was on a flight too. <laughs> Um, yeah, and to go off of what you were saying with uh, different play styles, I, I definitely think that that was very intentional, um, it's, especially if you take into consideration assist mode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, it'd be neat to see more games do that. Uh, do, you, do you know of any off the top of your head that, you know, that's a conscious game design decision? Oh boy, I'm not sure. I mean, Celeste is probably the the most recent where I actually kind of experienced that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm generally like basically if it comes to like main release games or kind of you know double triple A games, I'm usually like one and a half two years behind. <laughs> um, like I was looking today of like, hey, maybe I should finally 
by Event Horizon Zero. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like, because I'll, I'll I'll generally get around to playing games that have become really important, uh, like Dark Souls, for instance, mm-hmm. um, which is always a funny one uh, when I, I get people kind of talking about it because there's always there are always people that are like, oh, it's it's not hard, it's not that difficult, and which is you know that's crap. It's of course it's hard. Like <laughs> it, it's it, it's just like that's that's part of the design and and mm-hmm. how you learn the systems and how you learn the ways to progress through that game. That's the work. Like that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we say something's hard or difficult, like they're like, like that's so it's such a broad. Uh, term or, or descriptor for these different kinds of experiences um, and it's obviously such an intentional part of the design it's it, it's weird to kind of go that route it reminds me of just whenever people uh, are like get good it's like eh, I don't want to like at least not at this <laughs> like I like getting good at <laughs> much different things that are far more useful in my life mm-hmm. um, I'd like to get okay but that's kind of where I want to stop. Um, yeah, I don't. Okay. Like, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything other than like early first-person shooter days where they always had like five different levels of difficulty uh, and would make sure that you felt super bad if you went below normal. Uh, but it was there. <laughs> so, mm. so that's something, I guess. I don't know. Do you, do you can you think of any? Uh, no, not really. Not off the top of my head. Um, I've I've been pretty light this past year on uh on playing games, unfortunately. Um, but uh, no, no. How about how about you, Ian? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of drawing a blank here, but I definitely feel like at least in the indie scene, I, I've heard more people talking about it, if nothing else. Yeah. So uh, at least people yeah. are thinking about it now. <laughs> Yeah, but. it really says something, though, that, like, between the three of us, the only thing we can think of is a very recent indie game that started on Pico 8. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's a conversation that hopefully is happening more, because you should be able to... Well, I mean, maybe should isn't the right word. There's a certain kind of entitlement there of, like, what a game designer should do for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... Like, the game designer should do what the game designer wants to do, but other players, and maybe that's where it comes down to, is it's usually a community problem, right? Like, Mm -hmm. other players should not, like, create the scene and pressure against the designers on whether or not it's okay to, like, design (laughs) in these kinds of features. Like, why why is the designer the, the... the bad person just because they're like, well, what if there was an easy mode or or a tourist mode or whatever um but yeah i mean as with most innovation it's probably starting and uh going to continue with the you know the one-off uh designers the small studios and people like that but i think that's great Mm -hmm. i i like that very much i'm i'm looking for experiences when i play games not necessarily a challenge there are times i want that but for different reasons i like picross for a challenge I turn off all the assist stuff on Picross. That's my Dark Souls. That's that's <laughs> where I go for that like uh, challenging satisfaction. <laughs> staring at a grid of numbers. The Dark Souls of numbers. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, now that I think about it, there are there are actually a few bigger titles where I, I guess it's they're not they're not first person shooters, but I feel like it's more along those lines where. Or I guess the first one kind of is, but like Bioshock Infinite, for instance, I remember had like a very easy setting because they have so much story in that game that they wanted to let people kind of have more of a touristy type thing with that. Or like the new, uh, or maybe it's the second newest now, uh, but the Hitman game that was just titled Hitman and everything, they made sure to have like a really hmm. easy version of it where you could basically just enjoy like going through the world and seeing the things you could do but they dialed back like all the difficulty and everything to just make it a very almost peaceful experience as much as it can be when you're an assassin but (laughs) yeah that's such an interesting example too because i think it'd be very tricky to figure out how to implement because like you said like being a tourist in a in the world of hitman like it's all all the mechanics everything is all the level design is all designed around like providing this crafted experience where you will feel like you have this freedom in how you're like sneaking around and, and committing these uh, assassinations uh, and you know they want you to feel very badass right mm-hmm. uh, but that's such a strange thing to be like well I just I'm gonna be the hitman that's <laughs> kind of walking around this world with a bag of popcorn like just checking <laughs> stuff out like hey yeah I'm on a boat and there's somebody I'm supposed to kill but yeah. <laughs> Who's got the time? Yeah, I'll get to it at like, some yeah, point. <laughs> what's, what's the tourism version of that? Does, is somebody else going to do the killing? Uh, is it an accident? Do they trip? Like <laughs> that would be a great game where easy mode, you just follow the hitman around like you're a chronicler. Yeah, you're you're just a you're just his pal. He's like, hey, I'm going on a hit. You want to come? Like, yeah. yeah, man, this would be great for my YouTube channel. Yeah, that'd be so great. <laughs> so you're you're Logan Paul, or okay, great. Oh no. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, well, let's let's not get into that. But uh... <laughs> sad. Uh, I guess on the opposite side, um, I have seen some stuff about uh, Tomb Raiders, the new Tomb Raiders design. Have you guys seen? Oh seen that yeah, circulating yeah. I think you sent me that actually. I, I have not. So they they have multiple difficulty settings. Um, so they have you know like the main combat difficulty, so how hard fights are, and then they have environmental difficulty. So as you scale it upwards, um, hints in the environment become less obvious. Like walls that you can climb up, like don't have that you know faded. Lots of people have crawled up this wall. Look, they just sure. look like the rest of the environment. And then there's also one for puzzles. So like things you can interact with. Like on easy, they like glow blue. Um, normal, they're just their normal like gold. And then hard, they're kind of hidden. So. Well, it's, it's like point-click quite... adventures, whether or not like you have to sit and hunt through every pixel, or <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So while it's not necessarily accessibility, it does offer a range, and it at least takes into account that people like difficulty in different sections of the game. And yeah. actually, I, I think it's totally access. It's, it's accessibility related, mm-hmm. though. Like in that case, it, yeah. Because, I mean, I may be terrible at platformers. Uh, so if there's, like, one that's maybe toning down the the difficulty of, of jumping from, you know, bridge to bridge or cliff or whatever in, in Tomb Raider, but doesn't dial down the, like, gunplay or the puzzle solving, like, that's, that's really interesting. I think mm-hmm. that's a, kind of a fascinating area of design for, especially for AAA, where you've got these really really complex environments and a lot of layers of mechanics it's not mm-hmm. just a puzzle game it's not just an action game it's not just a platform right like there's 
all of these different layers, so why not have that uh, kind of cater in a, in a more granular fashion? Mm -hmm. uh, like the, I love how they did difficulty in like early Monkey Island, um, where it's you know part of it is kind of the comedic absurdity of <laughs> uh, how the logic works. Um, but there, uh, if you went to an easier mode, it would basically short circuit certain puzzles, like a little bit of dialogue or or a mechanic here would just slightly change, that then leads to a component much closer to the solution on easier mode, uh, but then gets much more circuitous uh, on kind of the regular or harder mode. Interesting. I I didn't play a whole lot of the the Monkey Island games. So oh my goodness, I... you need to. it's so good. Hmm? What was that? It's so good. You gotta play it. <laughs> and and now they have all the the remasters of every like Day of the Tentacle is remastered, Full Throttle's remastered. Like it's every one of them is just an absolute gem. Oh yeah. I I think I did play one of them at a friend's house. We just played for maybe an hour. Um, so. I have like this vague memory of kind of what it is, but not really. <laughs> so yeah, I, I might have. It to... does require attention span, though, which mm -hmm. I know is in short supply nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what were you saying? Yes, exactly. Oh, kids. <laughs> so, um. On the on the topic of Switch, like we might as well just just you know let, let's just talk about Switch the entire time. We won't Smash. switch it up. We'll just talk about Switch. Fair enough. Um, so you did mention that you love the Labo. I'm still waiting to get one. Um, I just it's been being put off forever, and I should just go <laughs> buy it and start. Um, I really want to do it with my with my uh, cousin. He he's 12, and I know that he's just oh, that's perfect. Store, so. Um, it's yeah. super great. It's oh, so great. Uh, I so I, I mean I got the the first kit. It's not the not the robot one. I've um, and it, so like some of the concerns people had before and, and maybe still have mm -hmm. uh, is that the experiences are a bit shallow. Um, so like mm -hmm. you build these things, but then the actual game or the actual interaction is pretty mild. Uh, yeah. and in some ways, that 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 might be true. Like you know, you do the fishing game, and the mechanics are pretty simple, and you can sit and fish, and it's very relaxing, and I quite enjoy it. But it's it's not really going anywhere. There's there's no real progression there. Um, but honestly, I don't think that's what Labo's real strength is. Um, mm -hmm. It's so first you've got the experience of building each one of these things, mm -hmm. and the um, the software that they design, like kind of this interactive camera-driven 3D model of all the cardboard and moving through all the steps is just really brilliantly executed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, I, I want this to be stolen for like so many other kind of <laughs> kits or build your own uh, kinds of things, especially in a world that's getting very like Internet of Things and making electronic kits and getting, uh, getting kids into engineering and coding. Mm -hmm. um, so they do just an absolute fantastic job of that. Like it's it's just enjoyable and fun to move through them. The sound, the music, the uh, the interface, UI, all of that is just top notch. Uh, but then 
beyond that, every every time you finish a project or kind of put something together, there's this whole other area where uh, it's walking you through all of the technology and teaching you about how all of it works and letting you experiment with it. Uh, and it has these kind of characters that you interact with and kind of like a very, very, very shallow uh, interactive fiction. Every once in a while it lets you, uh, uh, it gives you like choices of what you want to say in this kind of text message style chat window. Um, and then it's showing little videos and then you can, uh, it'll, it'll turn on the infrared camera, say in one of your switch controllers. So you can see what your camera is seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, and like does back and forth views where you can, uh, see the outside of the controller or switch and then see the inside electronics of it. Uh, and basically just going through all of the different, uh, like how these very magical things that they're doing are, uh, like very doable, very understandable, uh, even, even by kids. Uh, and, and again, with stuff that's available now, like kids could even start building this kind of stuff themselves. But then you get to the software that they developed for allowing people to create their own experiences in it um, from like different musical instruments and defining like if the infrared camera sees, you know, these blobs or shapes in these locations, then trigger, you know, these actions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's just mind blowing. I, I, I think it's such great stuff to get uh, kids into uh, and allowing them to start developing that kind of logical mindset in a creative way. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's something a lot of students don't have figured out yet. And it's one of the, the hardest parts uh, of like when teaching game design is not only do most of them not come in with any kind of coding background or having really done any uh, themselves, they don't necessarily, they haven't even been exposed to the kind of logical thinking you need to do any kind of programming because it doesn't really matter what language there's a certain point where once you understand like uh, those basic logical structures you know if this is true do this if this is false do this uh, then coding becomes more about like just semantics and like Mm -hmm. which little block of built-in logic or functionality are are you going to access or use Um, but when people don't quite understand that and they're like, I want to be a game designer or a game developer, it's, it gets really, really hard. Uh, and we've, we've sped things up so quickly with the kinds of technology that people are growing up with that we kind of like have this dip, this valley of people, this like maybe a generation or two, I don't know, uh, where they, weren't really allowed to dig into that stuff or how that works. Like computing stuff, electronics, all these things were, uh, you know, very packaged up, very tiny. Like you get an iPad, you don't have like something that you can unscrew the back and be like, whoa, what is all this? (laughs) Uh, Like we, we missed the boat on the early like hobbyist electronics revolution when parts were super big and you could actually repair stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but now, but now it's coming back again. It's just now all the people that are growing up and post university and everything, they they didn't get that. <laughs> they didn't get it while they were young, and now they're hearing all about it. So I think for like both, not just kids, but like kind of everybody, uh, there's so much people don't realize 
they can do or that they're capable of doing. Uh, and things like Labo, uh, I think, are great ways to reveal that. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, even for your own sake, like if if you've never messed around with electronics and or or just these logical systems, then it's like going through Labo and, and digging into all of the extra material that they supply. That's where the real gold is. Um, and I know they're like making new kits and experiences and. I get really frustrated when people complain about the price because it's like $20 in a normal Switch game um, mm -hmm. and easily provides just as many hours as you're going to have on anything else. And it's giving you these physical materials. You're not paying $80 for cardboard. That's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Like so much time went into designing this experience. And like there is room for play that's not necessarily like highly game driven. Uh, and and I think like these platforms like Switch are perfect for that. Like I think that should be very much supported. Mm -hmm. so, I don't know. That's my rant on why Labo is the best ever. Yeah, I mean if if you I mean on, on the price, if you exclude the software, you know you get six different you know like projects, six different toys at the end. Uh, you know little things to play with. So if if you even do the math on that. It's like eleven to fifteen dollars per, um, you know, uh, you know, little constructible project. Which, like, that alone isn't that bad. And then you factor in the software. Yeah. And, like, and you can start making your own stuff. I mean, they're already doing contests for that. Really? Like, I saw someone made a cardboard accordion that's like powered <laughs> by Labo on the Switch. Like, and so that's the. So cool. The camera was the camera is inside a compartment looking at um, one of the faces that has a bunch of holes in it. Mm -hmm. So what it's looking for is when one of those holes disappears, play this note. So you place your fingers over these holes and you've got mm -hmm. a basically a solar accordion. Huh. Um, so and, and it's just really inventive stuff like that. Um, I think it's just super duper, duper good. Mm hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot of, well, by a whole lot, I mean literally nothing um, of, you know, the custom creations uh, in my timeline. And uh, I really wish that there was more of that because I did see that Nintendo was having some sort of contest uh, where whoever could create the the best thing with their Labo would get a custom Nintendo Switch that oh, is painted to look. so bad. <laughs> it's yeah. so good. It's so good. It looks so good. I know it's uh for, for the listeners it is a nintendo switch that is painted to look like cardboard so it looks like it it came straight out of the box when you opened up your labo even um, the even the uh the stand that you charge it on the edges have corrugated like printing on it so it really? looks like the edge of a piece of cardboard it's so good whoa i i didn't look that closely at it that that sounds really amazing it's it's so good <laughs> So are there, I mean, I'm sure there are, but do you know of any communities or pages or places online where um, somebody could browse through all the different creations that people have made with Labo? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I know there's, um, like, because I, I, I think Nintendo has its own space where people can post stuff. So I think there's, like, mm -hmm. the official one. Uh, okay. I don't know if there's kind of anything outside of that. Um, but even there, like I know there's 
there's a fair bit of stuff that that you can look through. Uh, the Labo website does uh, it actually kind of shows what I was talking about too. The different 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 components of the Labo experience, like the making mm -hmm. stuff, the playing stuff, and then the discovery section of it, which is where you're kind of getting all the behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, I know they have a community. I don't know what else is out there, but I'm sure it's I'm sure they're uh, going to grow if they haven't already. Um, yeah, you said you have the variety kit. Yeah, that seemed the most kind of compelling to me. Um, so it's got the fishing, which is really great. A weird house, uh, which is <laughs> it's hard to describe. You have like this fat gerbil and basically feed it a lot of jelly beans. Um, but it does display some really clever uses of um, this. It, one of the big pieces of Labo is it has tiny pieces of reflector tape, uh, which just make it so it's really easy for the infrared camera to uh, get the contrast. And so, like, if you have a pattern on it and then it's a thing you twist, then the camera knows, oh, you're using this component because it has this pattern and it turned this direction. So I know you're activating it or whatever. Uh, that's kind of it's the big gimmick uh, outside of, you know, accelerometer kind of motion sensing stuff. Yeah, it, it boggled my mind, just like how they, they have these controllers. Because when, when they were announcing, you know, how the controllers worked at, um, I think they revealed it at E3 a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Like their whole demonstration just, you know, I mean, obviously everybody brings up the ice cube uh, you know, trick where, you know, feel how many ice cubes are in here and feel them go around. But then they have, you know, the IR camera and all these different things. And no games really use them besides, you know, one, two, switch. So, like, it's really exciting to actually see it uh, being used. And I hope that more developers uh, can integrate it into their games. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll help now that, I mean, switch pretty quickly... I think hit that critical mass where the mm -hmm. Wii U never did, because uh, at the time, like I uh, during Wii U times, I I um, had a Nintendo developer account and I was really excited, and then it came out and it just was a thud, <laughs> and and that was kind of the the vibe that like a lot of I think kind of more independent people had. I mean, probably companies too, but um, were people just stayed away and so it didn't get that influx of stuff but the switch hit and it it just tickled people in the right way which got developers very quickly on board porting their stuff getting good content on it which then like now it it, it crossed that threshold of okay this feels like a viable platform like if i make something for this it will sell at mm -hmm. all uh and since what they essentially created was this kind of dynamic uh, alternative controller platform, uh, it really does open the door for that. And it's it's hard to say how much that'll happen because it's it's the I think smaller studios and people that are going to have the more compelling concepts that will utilize those alternative means, and yet it's inherently more expensive to do that because it means, you know, a lot more testing, a lot more uh, design iteration. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's kind of a bummer in that sense, but that's, I mean, that's a much bigger problem, right? That Nintendo isn't going to be able to just 
instantly uh, overcome for people. Uh, the and bigger companies maybe maybe they will. They have the resources to, but then again, they're also you know more risk averse and and don't necessarily want to do those experiments until us you know smaller team has already proven it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's the kind of thing where I if if that was a possibility, if there was a small like team of people that are like, hey, Jerry, we want to make some like stuff for the switch that's really like using the switch stuff. I I I would be on that team. I would I would be there like instantly. because uh, that's that's exactly the kind of space that I think is just by far the most interesting. Whether or not it would be the most profitable, it's hard to say, but so cool. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. maybe that's what they need is people that are already working in that kind of space, you know, like myself, like uh, you know, people like Robin Baumgartner, people that are uh, that have been spending years like with kind of physical, strange, interactive things, uh, and and maybe not having to have the same amount of like ramp up to okay, like we want to do interesting interesting stuff with this, but how does that how does that translate into an experience that we can communicate to people? like mm-hmm. in a compelling way so that the the typical person typical consumer can look at it and go okay that's weird but like i'm into it and maybe like one two switch is maybe nintendo's like you know firing from the hip try for that and like i don't know there hasn't been a WarioWare for it yet right like mm-hmm. they just released a new one for 3ds but yeah like they it's that kind of thing that once I think more people see what's possible, maybe maybe it'll get better. But I do think it's the perfect platform to start doing that. Yeah, and maybe we'll see that with um, I think December. There's a new Mario Party coming out. Um, oh yeah, so, that's a good point. That's a yeah, that's a we'll that's a there. great one for kind of using the weird stuff. I guess anything with mini games, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. What what I always think of when I think of uh, a game using, um, you know, the platform's, like, strengths the best, I always think of Tearaway. When are we going to get the Tearaway of Nintendo Switch? Mm. You know? Um, I, I mean, have you... Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tearaway is a very, very lovely game. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is yet another one I want to spend more time with, but... <laughs> Yeah, I remember I only ever got the demo. Um I I was a broke college student when it when it came out and I just never got around to buying it. It's I should do that soon. I should I should just do it. Um <laughs> but I you I mean... remember touching the back screen or the the back touchpad and it, you know, ripping a hole in the world. Uh and <laughs> then it used the camera on the back to show the the floor. Um, that just blew my mind. I was like, yes, this is the best thing I have yeah. ever seen. Why aren't there more games doing stuff like this? That's, and that's my favorite stuff is, is bringing that magic into the like spaces that we inhabit. Like we live in a high fidelity universe. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's like way more exciting to me when, that magical like alternate reality kind of world overlaps the spaces that we exist in rather than 
you know, stuck in a screen or, I mean, VR, VR is interesting because, okay, so now you're creating this entire world that's allowing you to have a very uh, effective presence. And yet, like, there's still so many problems with that because as much as I love VR, I still can't play it for very long without mm-hmm. without either just getting fatigued or my face is hot or <laughs> or I'm just getting a little nauseous or dizzy or it's just too much work. <laughs> like it's so much equipment and like whether or not it's wireless and da da da, it's always going to be a little bit of a hassle. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe augmented glasses and like magic leap and stuff like that. will get to that point eventually. And when it does, if it does, like that's, that's going to be huge, but there are so many ways to make our spaces kind of more interesting and magical without, without it just being like kind of 3d overlays or <laughs> stuff like that. Like it's those it's those little interactions, the touching the back and tearing a hole. Like that's such a beautiful connection, uh, and and creates this like just really wonderful feeling, and yet is so simple. Mm-hmm. I think that's one reason I've always just like I love kind of escape room style design and and things like that. Yeah, you have one here in Minneapolis. I saw. I do. Uh, you should you should play it. It's very mm-hmm. good. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. And like my first my first thought is who do I know that would be good to bring to the escape room? Because I went on the site and it's listed as advanced. It is so. a tougher one. It's but I like when uh I designed it with uh my pal David Pisa, uh we also we thought a lot about like what it is that makes like a good escape room experience. Mm-hmm. And although like solving it successfully is difficult, um, we also tried to make sure that whatever happens, you really get to utilize like the time you have. And I don't know, we tried to make it where even, even not necessarily succeeding is fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was, I, yeah. Utopia room is, I'm, really quite proud of that like that it's it's something that like we had dreamed of doing for a number of years uh not necessarily uh, that design in particular but mm-hmm. uh an, an escape room and uh we we had this idea for what it could be the the things that we wanted to avoid we wanted to like completely move away from like cluttered rooms full of just random objects that you're spending half your time just like turning over um, mm-hmm. we wanted it to be something really kind of starting up simple and sublime and like where you really just feel that you're in this completely new place and you really have to like reset what your expectations are um, and then let it expand and then let it surprise you and reveal itself to you. Um, and and I think we were largely successful with that, which which was very, very satisfying. I, we, we did another design uh, together for Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. um, which I believe is, it's, I don't know, either in currently being built uh, in London or outside of London, like uh, Oxford, UK and Edinburgh. Um, and, and 
we're kind of taking a lot of the lessons that we learned there and um, putting it into an Alice world, which uh, I think lends itself very, very much to that kind of surrealness, you know? Mm -hmm. Huh. Interesting. And that's, that's, you said it's being developed right now. So like it's, or what? The, the Alice in Wonderland mm -hmm. one, the design is complete. Like we, okay. we finished design. that in the spring. Now it's just like, actual construction and ah. making making all the things happen uh which we're we're not a part of that um we you know we're both in the states and uh frankly i don't think that they <laughs> they could afford like having us over there building it all <laughs> for them um but creating the design for that was a really interesting experience it was about three weeks of design work and was 190 pages of uh, the, the final document uh, describing just every level of the experience um, because you have to look at it from so many different perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what's, what's it going to feel like uh, being a person entering this room and, and how they're going to move through it? What are they going to perceive? How are they going to be led from one moment to another? And where are you designing very specific, um, oh, what did we call them? Uh, kind of, uh, I can't remember the term we were using, but kind of these snapshot moments, these, uh, you know, the, the the photos you go back to in your mind of what made an experience uh, particularly like huh. memorable and wonderful to you. Uh, and, uh, and that's what's really important to that kind of experiential design of recognizing like you are crafting an emotional journey mm -hmm. uh, and, things need to unfold in certain ways uh, in order to get uh, kind of the reaction and experience that not only you as the designer want, but that the people that are engaging with it uh, are likely to want. Um, so it's just so many different layers to go through. And then of course there's the logical layers, like what's the actual, like here's where they are first and here are the uh, things that are available to them, the components, the puzzles, like, you know, here are the different orders that they could confront things and, you know, solve them. And that changes the state of this and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, and then, of course, like, here are these sensors and electronics that you're likely to need for this puzzle to function. And <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, it's super complex, but it's uh, it's probably the that kind of work is like the most rewarding and interesting uh, that like I get to do is where it has so many layers uh, and a lot of the work is figuring out how those different layers tie together to make something that's just otherworldly. Um, mm. And and even going beyond that, like uh, I've, I've done some research uh, outside of the room itself, like as far as people, how they approach experiences, how they onboard and how they offboard. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of uh, have you have either of you done any escape rooms before? Um, I recently it, it wasn't an actual escape room, but I recently played. <laughs> you were just kidnapped and locked in. Yes, a... yes, oh. I was locked in a room, and it was like you're gonna live here forever, and I escaped. Um, That's actually more impressive. Uh, what do you think you, of the man. design of the room in that case? I mean, you know, it, it was pretty bare. There wasn't a whole lot of environmental storytelling going just on. Just a closet. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just a, you went in a closet, a broom fell across the handle, and you were there for three hours. And <laughs> and it was dark. It was it was difficult, you know. Yeah. No, um, I, I give it a solid like seven out of ten. I, I I'd do it again. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was a card game uh, escape room type situation. So I, no, 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 no. You have to elaborate. That's. We don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, when you have a deck of cards, but it's an escape room. It falls on you, and then oh, no. um. So like it, it. I, I think I think they brought it or introduced it to me as an escape room, like to kind of get me to give me the concept, even though I had never been in one. To get your hopes um, up, so they can just immediately dash them. <laughs> um. <laughs> so the basically. It, you, there's like these six characters and then you distribute them between everybody so you have different like pieces of information mm-hmm. um, and then you go through these sequences and it, it's cool because it branches off and then like there's multiple people trying to solve different puzzles as you go into this heist into this hotel and then you try to escape or I, I think it's a casino you like go in there and then at the end you have to escape so like yeah it's I, I don't so know. It's, anyway. it's Monaco. It's it's like, um, yeah, Burgle, Burgle Brothers. That's a game I have. Okay. It's basically everybody gets a role, and they're a different kind of thief, and then you rob places. Um, okay, but you've never done an actual escape room. No, I've never. That's that's the closest I've done. And as okay, I talk not, about it, I realize it was. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> go out on a limb. It, it, whether or not it was a good game experience, I have a feeling it's very different <laughs> than the actual escape room experience. So, okay, I guess the, the point I was leading to is when you are taken into an escape room, uh, generally, uh, there are obviously many, many different escape room companies doing many different mm-hmm. things, but the most common is you show up with your group, uh, they make sure everybody signs a waiver, uh, somebody that works there gives you a quick spiel like, okay, so it's an Egyptian tomb, and you're all, you know, exploring it and trying to find this artifact, but watch out, there could be a curse. Uh, and then they put you in the room, they close the door, maybe a video plays or something to give you that, that initial intro, whatever the case, mm-hmm. and then a timer starts, and then, bam, there you go. Um, even the best escape rooms, even the best designs, uh, I find that there's this this friction uh, between the moment of like being put into that room and having to actually kind of start working in that space. Mm-hmm. And when you've got 60 minutes, I, I, I think it's really frustrating when the first five minutes are uh, a group of people in a room all kind of looking at each other like, okay, so we're do we solve stuff? Like, now what should we do should do we coordinate like everybody's still themselves at that point they mm-hmm. they've come into this space and they're still the people uh that you know were at work earlier that day or went to get a car wash or like somebody stole their bike like mm-hmm. there's still people caught up in their lives and that's that's a problem like the whole one of the you know primary goals of an experience like this is to erase that part of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's to t- it, and, and like rebuild the self that like is way more exciting and interesting to you. Like the the self that you create when you're playing games or uh, when you're 
watching your favorite movie like the the self that is completely like bought into this new universe uh and and so as a result like it's super duper important that that five ten minutes even before being put in that room that there are uh like that somebody is paying attention to how you transition into that space so the second you're in that room you're ready and like you're excited and and you're gonna just jump in and, and do whatever it is you got to do so um did you yeah. did you try to address that problem when you were building your escape room is there some aspect where you try to kind of immerse them before they even get to the room or so no and but the the problem there is simply the fact that we don't own the space right like, it's yeah. it is a riddle room is a company owned by uh, another individual and like that's that's essentially his domain like i i was very i'm very critical of that like and it honestly that was actually one of the reasons i was doing the research is it frustrated me that the experience of like walking in and getting ready and doing it uh is so uh uh yeah just kind of butts up against it. it it's very frictiony uh and and a lot of the other experiences i played were like that too um so unfortunately i've never been in a position where i get to kind of make that call um that'd be awesome though i would love that as a as a job to basically like uh go to different companies and be like here are ways you can dramatically improve your experience without even touching the room designs at all for very little money um but i don't know i don't know if there's people looking for that but that was essentially like the basis of my research is how do you how do you make that happen how do you how do you do that in a way that like a regular company could actually realistically employ because there there's kind of this point where you'll see escape rooms that obviously have major money behind them mm -hmm. they're using tech uh, and software that is probably the of the same echelon that's being used in concert venues, like expensive stuff. Yeah. And when you have that, and you can build this like full-on like theatrical experience from like you know every every single point along that journey, that's great. But the fact is, most you know most companies, most uh, businesses that do this sort of thing do not have those kind of resources. And frankly, most of them don't have experience in game design, theater, or like experience design, or in fact, any of the fields that would deeply inform what they're doing. Um, a lot of the best escape room like game designers I know, the reason that they got into it was they went to uh, businesses that do this, that make a lot of money doing it, and their first impression was, oh, I could do better than this. <laughs> and the fact is, they were all right. Like, it's 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 an uh, industry that I think primarily is filled with people that were like, oh, this would be a great business. And they weren't wrong, uh, but they don't necessarily have uh, that expertise or that talent behind them. And some of them, I'm sure, like, develop that or figure that out or hire those people. Some of them don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard, right? Because you're—it's a business. You—you—it's essentially a, a ticket-selling business. Uh, so it's—it's a—it's—it's 
it's a difficult thing to accomplish, but um, but one that it, but it's an aspect that I find just like incredibly fascinating. Um, I actually just studied uh, in I was in Disney for a week. Uh, basically, I was just learned, thinking about Disney. I, I I was there for a week learning uh, basically theme park design and both like from the details within the rides, from the areas like around the rides, the queuing the lands that they do that kind of separate from each other, the ways that they gate and connect those spaces, the way that they uh, hide or obfuscate aspects of the park from different viewpoints of the park. Like, mm -hmm. Disney, like, <laughs> like, like them or not, like, they were at the forefront of what is still considered, I think, very modern design methodologies. Um, and... Yeah, there's oh, there's just so much there. I, there's an incredible book, an incredible book for someone that's like super interested in this kind of stuff, called Theme Park Design. So it's pretty easy to Google uh, by David Younger. But it's basically a thick textbook of absolutely everything. Like I think people with like theater or stagecraft background would find lots of incredible content. People that are doing game design, people that are uh, I don't know. It's 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 a uh, anybody that really enjoys just design and experience design uh, would really get a lot out of it. Yeah. Were Were you at Disneyland or Disney World? Uh, World. World. Okay. Yeah, I have a friend that works there, and he he's always telling me about stuff. Um, you know that they, that they're rolling out, and uh, it's it's super cool seeing them. You know, do all these different things because they they are super uh you know like on the edge of you know like trying out new technologies and creating really immersive yeah, things for and, sure. like i remember I, I went to disneyland for the first time while i was out in california and the like most of it was just like okay like i'm at a theme park but then i went on a ride that um is toy story and you had this like little shooter that you pulled the string and then there were big displays, uh, like you know, huge screens that you would shoot at with. And it's it doesn't actually shoot real balls; it's it's all digital. And I and it's just I remember getting off that ride and going, "Wow, I want to design something like this. This would be so much fun to work on." And then I found out about the Imagineer program. Um, I didn't I didn't sign up for it. Um, you know, I, I'm not in college, and I it, it sounds like. Uh, quite a bit and I'd much rather have you know some prior experience before jumping into that um, but it's so cool knowing that there are opportunities that, the, that you know Disney in particular tries to get people that are very into working uh, within these uh, spaces and are super creative um, oh yeah the, the Imagineering stuff is just incredible I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend time with a few of them over the years oh yeah uh, just from like exhibiting work in the same space, um, uh, I at one point made this TV game called Please Stand By that was out of a 1950s television. Mm -hmm. It was basically taking uh, the the idea was taking all of the uh, frustrating ways that you had to interact with TVs back then, you know, <laughs> hitting them and adjusting the rabbit ears and the, and the very like clunky channel changing, all that kind of stuff and then turning those into mechanics uh, and, and ways that you interact with the media on the screen. Huh. Uh, 
uh, it was a really fun project. Uh, and when a, a, a gentleman came over and he turned uh, that was playing it and really liked it, and he turned out to be an Imagineer, and we started talking about uh, yeah, just a, a lot of the work that they were doing and some of the kind of experimentation that they would do, and some of it just absolutely blew my mind. Um, they had done a haunted mansion project where it was uh, three packages and. Uh, they only sold 999 of these because uh, that's, uh, I believe, how many ghosts there are inhabiting the Haunted Mansion. Uh, okay. And once a month, they would, for the people that purchased this, they would send one of those three packages. And it would contain a lot of physical stuff, uh, like a fake newspaper, a teacup, uh, all these different things. And there would be puzzles to solve, uh, this kind of mystery, and like each month there would be its own discrete puzzles, and then it would start leading to this bigger piece and uh, one of the objects was this little plinth, this little uh, gargoyle um, cylinder. Mm -hmm. And uh, you download an app for your phone uh, that would do different things through uh, different stages of the experience. But they, uh, he put the, his cell phone in this little kind of cardboard constructed old tiny radio. Mm -hmm. And so on the screen it has, you know, the the dial and, and all the numbers and everything. And he said, like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this and I want you to tell me how this works. Uh, and so he, there's a cardboard hole next to the phone and he stuck in the little cylinder and he turned it. And then the dial on the phone screen was moving back and forth, depending on how he turned it. And like, as somebody that works with a lot of sensors, a lot of microcontrollers and interesting technology, like it was pretty mind blowing. Because uh, I was like, so there's no technology in the cylinder at all. It's like, he's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and I was like, how how are you doing this? And so it, he he revealed to me that basically at one point, one of the Imagineers he's working with was like, oh, uh, can we like just directly read magnometer data from cell phones? You know, most phones now have compasses, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that compass data you're getting is highly filtered. Uh, and I believe, like, even if you put magnets next to your phone while it's in compass mode, it, you might be surprised, but it won't affect it. It huh. will continue to show true north. Uh, and that's because it's actually, like, fairly easy to filter out localized interference. Really? However, what if you were using, like, that local uh, uh, magnetic field data? And so basically, they just found a way where it's like, okay, if the phone is in this position, and we know that because they just built a little cardboard thing for it, and the hole where you put the plinth is in this position, and then we just, you know, figure out how the signal changes as the polarity of the magnet is flipping <laughs> back and forth, we'll just turn the dial back and forth on the phone. I was like, this is so good. It's Whoa. so good. And it's that kind of stuff. It's that kind of innovation where, sure, you could do that a million different ways with, you know, sure, sensors are cheap. You could put in a cheap, like, couple dollar Bluetooth low energy thing, and then it talks to your phone app and everything. But also, what if you didn't? What if all you needed was a, like, just worth absolutely nothing magnet in a piece of plastic? And voila. <laughs> You can do this kind of magic, and then and they did. There there were more tricks like that that they did, mm -hmm. and I was like, this is, 
this is like the real stuff where people are just coming up with the most incredible uses of like both the, the technologies that are available to us you know we with cell phones it's they're just packed now they are packed with so many interesting sensors like mm -hmm. the data you can pull from them is just bonkers uh but then being able to like create these magical experiences that are piggybacking off this technology and yet not increasing the complexity or increasing the cost and i don't know it, that was a particularly like amazing moment for me in terms of like what does it mean to do that kind of design work and and like do imagineering um but yeah it's super cool stuff i think imagineering uh yeah i wish i could just like go live in their lab <laughs> I I think that would be a pretty comfortable lifestyle, just living with them, seeing all the crazy stuff that they make. I, I guess the only, like, the one downside I've heard about being an Imagineer is by the nature of doing so much experimentation, so many projects that, that kind of spin up, is that the frustration uh, some of them have is simply that it's almost rare to ever finish anything. Mm. Like, it, it'll turn out that it's like, oh, no, th this isn't going to be what we use for this, so there's no reason to continue this development. Even if it's going well, or even if it's interesting, it's like, well, if, if there's no, like, end game for it, then, you know, why keep pouring time and money into it? Yeah. So I guess that's one of the most frustrating things, is you just don't get to actually, like, finish a lot of projects. Mm -hmm. I have no idea at what scale they're talking about, <laughs> or, or how prevalent that is, and I, I can certainly understand how that would be a problem, though. I mean, even with yeah. my own work, there's a lot of experimentation that just doesn't end up anything. Yeah, I, I feel that that's a pretty good parallel to, to indie games as well, except instead of somebody getting distracted by another project, uh, it's more so like the team choosing to, to pursue a different project. Mm -hmm. So it's the same, but I feel that the underlying, like, idea isn't that you're getting um like inspired by something else but you're being ripped away from your project <laughs> yeah <laughs> yikes yeah that that would be difficult um as somebody who always is starting new projects and doesn't finish them i don't know if that would irritate me or if that would just feed into this like subconscious uh content i have with it <laughs> so yeah I, th I think it depends too on kind of where you're at in, in your development. Like, true. And, and I, I think this changes like throughout your life too, because there are times where I am far more interested in exploring new techniques or learning a lot of new stuff from like the people I'm working with, the uh, mediums that I'm working in, uh, than I am about the end product. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it could be working on a, a, a final piece that I have zero interest in, but the stuff, the underlying components to it are very fascinating. And then there's other times where the project is the point, like the creating that final experience, that that final piece is what's supposed to be super satisfying. So like for the escape room design, like it's very important that I felt that way is that that the final experience was what I was going after. And even though there was interesting tech that I wanted to use and that I wanted to explore for it, there were reasons why it would not be the smartest decision, um, either because of cost, uh, maintenance, just sheer complexity of it and not having the time. Um, 
So I think I think that can always be shifting, right? Like depending on the project you're working on and it, who's involved and who you're working for and all that. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So um switching switching gears a little bit. Um do you so you you're a professor at uh the the lovely Miami <laughs> University. Yep. Not in Florida. Nope. Um and do you do you ever get to express any of this of this passion for uh, you know, game design in terms of theme parks or experimental, you know, controllers and input methods. Do you get to explore that at all with your students? Oh, definitely. Like that's, and that's why I'm there really. I mm-hmm. I only teach game design classes and okay. uh, almost all of the game design classes I've taught, I either put together myself or uh, have been heavily modified. Uh, and I do have one class that is simply just alternative controller game design um, where it's lots of cardboard it's lots of weird parts and it's uh it's taken a few iterations to kind of get it where i want it to be uh which again i mentioned it earlier but the biggest challenge has been i have to assume i'm starting with students that don't know how to code and don't know anything about electronics Mm -hmm. and then within a semester have them feeling comfortable with both of those things while creating like a bunch of like really creative, innovative projects. Um, but what I found is that working with their hands, working with physical components and being able to kind of see what they're doing, like, and, and have an understanding of like, okay, this, this is a button. How does a button work? Like once I understand <laughs> that I can start, building off that like uh making something that's more complex now i have two buttons how i how could i use that could i you know i could chain them together so you have to press both buttons for uh the circuit to be complete uh you know it's basically these very simple concepts that you know laying the groundwork and then uh they can take those and start combining them in all these different interesting ways Mm -hmm. uh but that's by far the the like my favorite thing that I've done there and, and, and I think has been incredibly successful. I've, I've gotten better game design work out of that class than any of my game design classes Uh, in in terms (laughs) of just innovative, like unique, thoughtful experiences. Uh, And I, and so I I think there's something to that. Like, I think whether or not like people, like their goal is just to make like digital only game designs uh, there's a lot of value in moving, you know, out of the screen a little bit and prototyping in different ways and, and in physical ways. It, it's, uh, I think, a great way to really cement a lot of uh, the way that you do your design work or to, to kind of figure out your creative process uh, by engaging both with your body and your mind. Uh, it, it can be... I think staring at a screen a lot like can be easy to get kind of lost there and there's a weird kind of fatigue that comes along with that. Mhm. Huh. Yeah, I mean, uh, along these lines, uh not not necessarily the exactly the same, but uh like um one game that I've 
uh, fallen in love with in the last year that I'm actually introducing some friends to later today uh, is uh, Overcooked. And even though it's not necessarily, you know, different input schemes or whatnot, but there is that whole element of verbal communication that's mm-hmm. very important. Uh, you, you can't play the game without it. Uh, <laughs> you, you find that out very quickly. Um, and even that, um, I, I don't know why, but to me feels like just this this new kind of area, which like what you're saying is, you know, I feel is five steps further. But even just seeing games do that um, has been really nice, nice to see. Um, so, yeah, I... I not sure exactly where I was going with this. Uh, it's, um, no, I think Overcooked is really interesting mm-hmm. because it does tap into a a different kind of play, like, mm-hmm. and it and it's something that like kind of disappeared for a while with like local gaming and uh, local play, um, and has come back I think quite a bit more with a lot of smaller games that are only local play or mm-hmm. uh, are highly dependent on the people playing it as the primary ingredient. Um, so having these very, very social experiences where it's really about setting the stage to put all of you on it. Like mm-hmm. where instead of being audience members, the whole idea is to make you, uh, to make you those actors and, and, to set yes. things up so you can play off each other and uh, have these like uh, moments of uh, growing tension and then release of that tension and uh, uh, changing uh, dynamics along the way. Um, and, and that's such a like wonderful area of, of design to uh, make stuff that's very kind of communal and group driven and play driven. Um, and it, it I always think about that, like kind of starting to dip into the territory of why are some games uh, fun to lose at and others aren't like, especially Mm -hmm. games we might play together. Like uh, the example I always use is uh, if I play street fighter with uh, a friend and one of us is terrible at it, they generally don't have fun. But Mm -hmm. if I play mortal Kombat with somebody, whether or not they're good at it, everybody's having fun. So what is it about it that makes it so we can be terrible at this one game and still have a great time, and then this other game, like, it's just miserable <laughs> and, like, somehow falls flat and is dull. And that's not to say, like, because Street Fighter is an amazing series of games. Like, uh, but it it does something different, and it's mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not it's intentional, it's accomplishing something different. Um and games like Overcooked, I think they really lean in, lean into that, right? Like that they are setting that up where you discover as the players that, yeah, we need to communicate for this experience to work. And it's the foibles of that uh, that are satisfying. And then it's the success of avoiding those foibles that is also satisfying. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm taking that in for a second. Um, <laughs> I, I really like what you're saying here. Um, especially the, the analogy with, um, you know, being, you know, audience members, uh, versus being on the stage. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't even know what to say say to this. I'm just. It's I'm like have it. you ever heard the term like the magic circle? The magic circle. Um, maybe I'm. I'm not sure. So familiarize. So the the magic circle is uh, this kind of idea. At least this is this is what I remember. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, I'm remembering it correctly. But the magic circle is kind of this idea that we uh, all accept that we're uh, we we all accept these kind of new rules to how the world works or or how our universe is going to work for this like period of time mm-hmm. um and so like sitting and and playing this game together uh it could be tabletop it could be anything uh we're we're just agreeing that like uh things have a different importance like uh there's an elevated important importance to these like arbitrary things that are happening uh there are rules that may be enforced they may not mm-hmm. Uh, or they may even be like rules that develop through this kind of miniature culture of that experience. Um, it's, but it's it's the reason why it becomes such a big deal. Like why do why do people care about sports games uh, or uh, follow a particular team and stuff like that? I'm I'm kind of all over the place here, but uh, <laughs> just the just that idea of like we uh in order to play and in order to satisfy this need to uh play and have fun or just uh get the certain kind of satisfaction uh or accomplishment we create these uh constructs that we then inhabit and then the experience unfolds and then it's completed and then it dissipates so you know i play a board game with you and you get really upset because I, you know, destroy you. And like, I'm very happy. I'm very excited. Like I just demolished you in this game and then the game is over and like that can fade away. Uh, like the, the accomplishment is there. We, we got to like enjoy those different emotions and feelings and, uh, and have that session of play, uh, but then it's done. And then we go back to kind of our normal world rules. Uh, uh, but it's, you know, it's something I've always found very fascinating, uh, especially being somebody that has never felt driven to become a super fan of anything. Mm-hmm. I, like it just it doesn't occur to me that that's a thing that I should do or that I would enjoy. So like you know I had my period of time where I was kind of very anti-sports, uh, and you know I was one of those people where it's like, whatever sports are dumb like. <laughs> Now, now I am like at least a little more specific. Like American football is really dumb. The rules are kind of boring, and it's mechanically awkward. Uh, but it's more about that game, not that it is a sport, or <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But there's there is like this this value in kind of joining that circle, and and fandom in that case is kind of this much bigger circle that gets created and then maintained by the people within it. Mm-hmm. Now, from the outside, it always looks a bit absurd or, or, or silly or whatever, because they have artificially applied importance to things that you have not. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's silly. And that's, I mean, maybe that's kind of the core of many internet arguments, right? Like, that this matters to some people and doesn't to, to others. And from the outside, it always looks kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, except, like, then 
all those people that are critical of it, of course, they have their own like magic circles or or spheres or whatever they're in with their own thing that they particularly love or get enjoyment out of. And then other people, you know, look at that and think, well, that's ridiculous. Um, and it's more of like where, where these different things kind of clash that things get very complicated because you just literally have counter realities that are trying to like come to terms with each other, but there's no way to do that because like, they don't know your rules. You don't know theirs. Like your goals are different. Like everything's all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where I'm going with this other than I, <laughs> I think it's just really interesting to think about as a, as a game designer, that's like one of the things you're trying to do is create uh, this space where people agree to certain things like, uh, like willing suspension of disbelief, right. With films, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the same idea of they want to get you to agree to these new rules, to this new uh, way of thinking, this new kind of logic, uh, and if you, and if they successfully do that, then you're probably enjoying it more, or at least mm -hmm. it's giving them full control. Because if you yeah. buy into the reality I'm selling you, now I can very accurately craft the journey that you're going to go on. I can make you feel sad, I can make you feel happy, angry, like satisfied, uh, all those different things, um, and like that's a very powerful tool right mm -hmm. uh, yeah i don't i don't know it's but i i mean i love social games i love local games like that kind of for that fact it's it's such an interesting thing to see that in action um it's also the reason i hate playing games like werewolf uh especially with people that i know because playing a game like that with people you know where it's all about like all right every night somebody's gonna get killed who's who's the wolf and it's like well guess who it's going to be it's going to be the person that everybody is always suspicious of like in my group of friends i'm probably the uh more of the puck than than the rest of them like i like playing little jokes on people i like you know being mischievous uh, but as a result, it means I'm instantly the werewolf, like every time, or <laughs> or in Secret Hitler, I'm instantly Hitler. Like it's just, uh, and like I don't necessarily mind it because once I realize that, now I just I I I've come up with my own sub games and sub rules that I'm playing that nobody else yeah. knows about. Uh, but generally, it, the game falls apart because whether or not there's any information on the table, it's just largely ignored. Um, but I know, and and which is probably one reason there've been so many variations of that kind of game of like trying to find ways to uh, like fit uh, or at least encourage people to use mechanics that actually acquire information about what's going on and who's who and all that. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a interesting like design space simply because like you've got everybody right there and you can. You get you get more information out of people's heads, whereas like a single person playing your game, whether it's digital or whatever, it's a lot harder to like pull stuff uh, from their minds about how the experience is being successful or not. Absolutely. So, have there been any designs that your students have come up with that have really stuck with you or impressed you? Um, 
especially in the, the social context, because I feel that a lot of people get stuck into more of, as you're saying, the digital side of just, you know, single player experiences. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, oh, I have to search my mind really quick or <laughs> feel bad. <laughs> uh, I think there's, there's definitely some in the, kind of alternative controller classes that I've taught that uh, have, have impressed me, have made mm -hmm. like kind of interesting situations. Like one of, oh, let's see, this is tough. Uh, there was one I really liked uh, that, okay, that was kind of in theme of this where it was a werewolf style game, but they wired it up and you all wore these sheep hats uh and during the night like there was there was kind of a physical component to it where you were uh like touching other people's heads and that actually like told the game uh you know who was murdered and, and stuff like that so like it, it, adding kind of the uh <clears throat> excuse me physical component of that was was really interesting uh but i think there was also some additional kind of stuff with that where uh, the hats, I think maybe there is some vibration element to it or something like that that kind of gave you some other kinds of feedback about what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, oh, let me think. There was, uh, <laughs> there's been so many weird games. Uh, there was a uh, fencing one that was that was quite nice. It was just kind of conductive stuff. As far as like really changing, um, hmm. I don't know. Like I, I guess all the ones that I've like really found particularly compelling, uh, they were they always had kind of physical elements to them. Like there was a really uh, great uh, duel game where they had guns and the software would tell them when to like draw and if you drew too early uh it would it would be able to tell again due to like buttons and conductive sensors and you mm -hmm. had to start back to back and there's also a sensor <laughs> there so if, if you stepped away early that was uh kind of invalid so uh or uh bend sensors on wrists and having a book in your hand and you would touch different like sigils and that would change the spell you were going to cast, and then you would have to raise your arm up. So it, it mattered that your arm was up, and then <laughs> tilting your hand up so your palm is facing forward, that would actually cast the spell. Um, there was a lot, of, a lot of stuff like wow. that that I really, really enjoyed. Um, bomb defusal games. <laughs> Just a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of weird stuff. Um, as far as, like, normal game... Uh, game design class stuff. One of my favorite was uh, a set of cards, and they, they were colored differently based off their difficulty, but it was based on these uh, Indian fables uh, about this individual that was always like going to uh, the leader of this land, and the leader was uh, would always give this individual these impossible tasks. And so they, what they did was they kind of boiled down and condensed all these different fables 
into this kind of mystery problem solving game uh, mm-hmm. where people are trying to figure out like how logically they would be able to, to solve these things. So it's, I mean, basically just kind of riddles, uh, mm-hmm. but with a really interesting kind of source um, and carefully kind of constructing them so, so that you would have the right amount of information. Uh, but it also really encouraged people as like a social group to come up with new solutions and, and different ways of uh, solving these like strange problems. Um, oh, there was a one I liked. Uh, this group made a diorama of a murder scene. <laughs> and it was like you could touch all the items in the room and then on a digital screen, it would like bring up information and uh, like there was physically hidden stuff. Like you had to peel up a rug and then like touch it and then it shows all oh, these evidence under the rug. So <laughs> I, yes. I did really like that. I thought that was really quite good. Um, and one where you started in a straight jacket and then you had to like complete a challenge with physical controls on a digital screen. Uh, and it would release a solenoid that let one of your arms free. And then the next challenge like would be harder, but you also needed your arm for it. And then that would release your other arm and, and like uh, kind of an interplay there of just like giving you more and more access to the controls, but then increasing the difficulty as you went. Very um, interesting. Yeah. So, I, I mean, certainly a lot of really like creative, creative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard with digital game design uh, because you, there's so much to do. Mm-hmm. Like, and in the course of a semester, even if all you do is work on one game the entire semester, you're, you're lucky if you've got a demo that works reasonably well. <laughs> and that's if you've got a fairly like condensed, simple concept. Um, so it's, I don't know. And, and that kind of gets into like, just some of the challenges of like teaching game design. Um, because like, it's, I mean, you have to be a unicorn to be someone that can really do it all. And like, implement all the components of a game that is going to sell like that's why even the people that are capable of doing it they take five seven years and then they do a bunch of talks about how miserable they were and like (laughs) all their mental like illnesses as a result like it's all the anxiety and the stress and the like you know was it all worth it and so so teaching this stuff where it's like getting people the skills uh, that they need uh, to even understand what they want to be creating uh, and how much of that can you do solo? How much of that do you need to get in teams? And like how many people think fondly of like group work that they did in university? Hmm. Yeah, not many. True. <laughs> not, yeah, as soon as you many. say it, I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, it's hard and it's necessary. There has to be some of that, but it's generally not wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I think there was one yeah. that was open, but yeah, it's it's hard. I, I put a lot of effort into finding ways to like make group work easier, mm-hmm. uh, not, or 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 I guess teach people how to do group work because that's one of the challenges. Like there are people that just they can just do their stuff. They mm-hmm. they know what they're doing. They can pick up slack if they need to. They're they're on top of things. There are people that are terrible at time management and doing all those things but they want to. Mm-hmm. So like some of it is just teaching some of those basic skills. Uh, some of it's 
making sure there's a framework in place so people are held accountable. So it's not after the project's done and everybody's pissed off that you actually figure out what went wrong, but it self-corrects in a way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and some of it is the people that do know what they're doing, learning how to uh, kind of spread that a little bit, like uh, do what they do in a way that actually supports the other team members and makes them better and makes them like more capable and more useful and uh, like lift each other up rather than like getting so frustrated with them and just climbing up on your own. Um, but it's hard. There's a, there's a lot of like interpersonal skills and, and time management skills. And then of course, just being able to do some part of the work. It's a, uh, it's a logistical nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I always remember the, the the problem with group projects was uh, not everybody did work. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, further into the course, it it became more even, where like, you know, some people didn't do as much. But I remember at the beginning, um, there were a couple of group projects where only like three out of the ten people actually contributed. If you had any issues with that. Um, where people just don't contribute enough. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've straight up, maybe not my proudest moment, but I took a group out of class and I just yelled at them. I was so furious with like what I found going on, and I was just like, "This is embarrassing. Like you're embarrassing yourselves. You're embarrassing me. Like it's, it's, it's it, it just hit a point where." the lack of taking any kind of responsibility and care for what was happening uh, just drove me over the edge. And I'm not saying that was the best way to handle it, but also I don't feel super bad about it. Like <laughs> it, it, there's a certain amount of like, and I guess a lot of what I was like really drilling into him at that point is like, look, this is, this is a difficult field. And like, these are things that, if you're unable to take these things seriously, then you have to really rethink whether or not this is what you want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And like, let me know, because if I can help you get over these hurdles, like I'm so in for that, but you can't just like try and walk around them and expect that things are going to go okay. That was also a challenging one because I also had grad students in the class and, and one of the grads and generally like people that are in grad school, they have their, you know, they, they have their shit together. Uh -huh. like, they, they know, like they're there for a purpose. They're not there because they're like, okay, I just got to get through this and then I can start my life. They're like, <laughs> no, like there, there is a, some kind of knowledge and information and things that I want to grind through and understand and apply and like to take it very seriously. And so like, it could be very difficult when you have undergrads and grad students together mm -hmm. uh, and, and it can go two different ways. And it has for me, I've had one where uh, having the grad student uh, working with some of the undergrads and it totally lifted all of them up. Like they got super motivated. They did things they never would have tried on their own. It was the perfect experience. Uh, and then another word, like this case I'm talking about where the grad student like just got fed up. They were just like, I can't do this. Like I'm trying to do real work here and I've got people that 
can't handle even checking their email or like other basic things. And, and it's just, it's just not okay. So it's, it can be hard. Uh, and it's, and, and it's things like that, that like, I've put more and more effort into, again, kind of the onboarding of, of what those expectations are and how to deal with those problems before they hit like that irredeemable place where I feel like I have to rip you apart. <laughs> it's like teaching is hard. Like, I mean, I, I, I try very hard. I don't want to like destroy people and make them feel bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, if anything, hyper aware of the difficulty of both that position as being an undergrad and uh, trying to find your direction and also the like anxieties and, and other issues that students are dealing with. I've, I've dealt with a lot of those and I still do. Uh, and I've like worked with students on, on some of that stuff where it's like, like you get apathy from a student and it can mean a lot of things. It could mean, and, and I've had a student say this when I kind of cornered them and I was like, we got to talk because stuff's not going right and we got to figure out a path. And, and the answer from them was basically like, I don't see how I could ever possibly compete in the industry or do anything worthwhile. Yikes. It was heartbreaking. Like, and, and so it was breaking that down and being like, okay, this student is basically apathetic because they just feel completely shattered and worthless and the anxiety of trying to pursue something that they feel they have 0% chance at success. Like that's, that's no good. And, and, and it, it's such a weird balance to be, uh, to like try and like figuring out the right attitude for students because I've had ones where it's just lectures of like, let's talk about success. Let's talk about what your each individual idea of success is in the game industry or in just game design in general, because it is so different for everybody. And everybody's trying to achieve different things uh, based on, you know, they, maybe it's the, they're excited about YouTubers and, and streaming game stuff. Maybe they're excited about design or modeling. Maybe they want a very specific industry job. Maybe they have these things that they just want to create on their own and, and have be known and consumed and understood by other people. Um, and, and like part of some of those lectures I give, it's, it's, it's a bit of reality check of like, if you want any of that, here are a few things that you need to be doing. And making it clear that when you're in university, the job of the professor is not to give you all of that. They are a facilitator. They are trying to open those doors and to show you where you should be focusing your effort. Because anybody that's like, whether it's studying game design or architecture or anything, if you're not also pursuing some element of that in your own time outside of what's assigned you and all that, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. And uh -huh. you are going to have a much harder time. You like it, it, we have this weird system where everybody wants to tick the boxes, and then that's then you're successful. You did all the things. Good job for you. And it's not how anything works. Mm -mm. Like those pursuits have to be like above and beyond any structure that you're given. Uh, and that's that's a that's a really hard one that I've been nailing more and more into my students' minds of like there if you are not exploring these things like you're gonna you're gonna come for a real shock when you graduate and <laughs> and like 
like you should be building your portfolio on your own. That could be anything, mm-hmm. small experiments, whatever, like whatever it is that drives you and like really gets you going. Like you need to be exploring that stuff and it doesn't need to be successful. Like this is the time to just be doing it. The raw time is important. The raw energy is important um, to just like find those mistakes and make them or dig into a topic and like actually come out the other side, being able to explain it. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's also like showing them that if, you know, that there are paths to like different kinds of success, it's just not necessarily the way you expect. No, like almost nobody comes out and they're like, Oh, I got that job that I had dreamed of. <laughs> like you come out and you, you take what you can find that fulfills some of those boxes and you get better at those boxes and then maybe you move on to a different opportunity that ticks a few of the other boxes and you start making progress in kind of this windy path toward that thing that you really want and eventually like you've you know you've built up enough of those things where you might actually be considered for that work or you find on that circuitous path because you're exploring different areas along with like things that you like that that's not necessarily where you wanted to be, or you could be happy in another area or direction. Like it's people, students especially just get so dead set on like, this is what must happen. It's (laughs) like, look, here's, here's my recommendation. Take a look off into the distance of something that seems nice, put on a blindfold and just start walking until you run into stuff. Like, you'll probably get there faster than the person that's like trying to head straight there. Um, Hmm. But, uh, and, and it's also just like continuing to do those things. I firmly believe that uh, despite how competitive the industry, however you want to frame that, uh, despite how competitive it is, 80 plus percent probably just kind of be like, I ran into a problem and it was hard and I'm done. Like so many people just kind of wash out of it. They just kind of give up and, and like everybody starts at different places. It's super not fair. Like it's super duper not fair, but the Mm -hmm. people that are like, that are taking that time to figure out what it is that they want to be doing or just experimenting enough to like, have enough things to iterate over having those stupid projects that maybe they drop after a few months, but like hell if they didn't learn a lot from it, mm-hmm. um, like keep doing that, find those things that drive you. And if you can find that motivator, find that engine, like you're going to find something some way, somehow. And then like, you know, all the other kind of typical stuff about how it works you're going to things you're getting outside your comfort zone you're 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 not staying within your own community you're going to events you're talking to people the you know the businessy uh uh, you know term networking like it's just making friends it's making conversation with people doing work you respect or you like or whatever yeah For sure. Jumping back on the whole, you know, you know, work on projects, you know, outside of school, that that was the biggest shock for me in, in college um, is uh, Ian and I, we both started making games uh, from a young age using, you know, tools like Game Maker. 
Yeah. Um, you were nine, right, Ian? I think. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then 12 here. So going into college, like, I had already had this mindset of, you know, it's possible and it's just something to do in your free time. And I went to a meetup with a bunch of people, like, three, four months in. And, um, uh, it was an accelerated program, so everybody already knew how to program and knew how to make make this stuff. And I was like, "So, what are you guys going to work on tonight?" And, and basically, everybody just looked at me like I was crazy. Like, why would we want to work right now? We're out of school. Like, what do you mean? If you don't love this, why are you here? You know. Um, and uh, it, it was very illuminating because then those people that I did see that did want to work outside, you know, they ended up you know, creating uh, a good portfolio for once they're finally out versus the other people. Yeah. Um, and where, where I'm ultimately going with this is uh, at the beginning, it was kind of easy to do that. But as we neared graduation, um, I ended up dropping out because, because of this exact uh, reason is the further in that we went, the less time out of school we had to explore Mm-hmm. beyond what they were teaching and I felt that what we were being taught was very surface level and not very deep. They gave us tons of PDFs and all this stuff that allowed us to go deeper but nobody had time to do so because there was just so much curriculum to to do so, so you, many tasks. you said this was an accelerated program? Yeah, which obviously that's why. Yeah, wait, um, how, how long was the program entirely? Uh, two years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so where I'm going with this is yeah, do sorry. you have a like have you seen any of those issues crop up uh, through your courses not or not, not necessarily just from you but you know the combination of people taking your courses and other professors courses um, yeah yeah no I, I, I totally feel you it's I mean yeah it's it's an easy thing to say right like just do do it out of class like <laughs> work on this big thing out of class uh, it, it definitely is a lot easier said than done. Um, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, you identified one problem. If uh, anything that's kind of accelerated, or you're overloading your credits, stuff like that, mm-hmm. like it becomes even more difficult. Um, now, in theory, you're saving the time to use elsewhere, right? Yeah. You know, you finish faster, maybe, and and then you're in a place where you can put more time into that. Whether or not that's realistic, either, is hard to say. Um, it also, like, it's tough because game design programs are still, I think, very much in their infancy. It's like what you were saying is, you know, just kind of getting handed a bunch of PDFs and, like, go! <laughs> like, I, I think that does still happen a lot, and I I think I think there's a lot of weird uh, uh, ways that, that some of the stuff is being taught, taught like, do a bunch of tutorials in Unity, and then you'll be able to make a game in Unity. Uh, stuff like that, which I just kind of fundamentally don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I guess addressing what, what you're saying about time outside of school, I it's always going to be a problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a problem during school. It's going to be a problem out of school when you've got some kind of job keeping you afloat. Uh, it's going to be a problem even when you get like some kind of related job, like it, anybody that like wants to be working on that stuff always has to sacrifice a, 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 a certain amount of, 
of time for that. Mm -hmm. um, which is tough because like, I think the word sacrifice is a really loaded word, especially in the game industry right now, <laughs> where we're trying to like recover from the idea that overdoing it and crunching yourself to death, like, uh, is a seriously like problematic way of doing things. Um, and I kind of look at it of that there are times there are times to push and there are times to not, uh, mm. and and everybody has to kind of figure out their own like what is good for them and what what's what can they take before it's a problem and that's that's hard to discover uh, without kind of running into that wall, and I still like make that mistake sometimes. I, I think the one of the biggest issues there is everybody gets so concerned about time and passing time and how quickly time seems to fritter away. Mm -hmm. um, and and one of the things I've kind of learned with that is that it's like, I mean, that's gonna, it, it's going to happen no matter what. Like, you're always going to feel that way, even uh, even if you're crunching, but you won't feel better and you'll, it's just going to get kind of worse. Uh, but, like, there are ways to fit that stuff into your life, I think, in healthy ways. Um, and one way I think students, like a great thing to be like working on as students is really sitting down and mapping out where your time goes. Mm -hmm. Like there, like no matter what kind of student you are, there is leakage there. Like there, there, <laughs> there are minutes that could be used better. Uh, and, and, and then deciding on some actual priorities and, uh, like I personally find writing things down and bullet lists like a godsend to organizing my thoughts, mm -hmm. uh, and and so I do that a lot. I do it with every project. I usually with anything I'm working on keep a bullet journal, where if I work on that project, I just have the thing on open in the background, and if I have a thought I want to document, I just write it down there uh, as a way to kind of trace my own thinking and how I've been, and and even evidence of like my mental health during it. Because uh, you can definitely tell in your writing if you're falling to pieces. Uh, uh, so, so going back, I, I think time management stuff's huge. Uh, since I've been doing grad school full time, teaching full time, projects, traveling, and speaking, like all in the same, you know, days and weeks and months, mm -hmm. uh, I've I've had to get like really really good at that, um, and one of the things like especially with grad school because well, frankly like with school you're always going to be asked to do things you don't want to do and sometimes you see the value of them sometimes you don't it's a little easier if you at least see why they're valuable even if they're not fun yeah. um and one of the hardest parts for me is just reading an endless number of academic papers on stuff it's just not fun to read like they they write like they're the smartest people in the world and want to make the writing as least accessible as possible, uh, which seems very counterintuitive, like coming into academia where it's like, well, wouldn't you want to write things in a way that people understand? Of course not. We wouldn't be academics then. So <laughs> <laughs> for that, like I just as a very specific example, I realized I could not read that stuff in the evening at all. Couldn't happen it would take at least three times as long to read. And I timed it and my comprehension was lower. Yeah. So I was like, okay, gotta fix this. Cause not only like, is this eating up a lot of time? It's definitely eating more time than it should. Uh, and so I switched it and I tried a, a, a change of schedule and I get up at a certain time and I read in the morning. 
uh, and like have a very quiet environment. Uh, and suddenly I was reading it, you know, in a third of the time that it was taking me before. And I was remembering more. Um, I also like changed up the tools I had and, and really thought about like how I was, uh, kind of tracking what I was doing. Uh, and like just stupid things. Like I changed my mental process of when I decided what to highlight in things I was reading. Like, it seems like such an inconsequential thing. Uh, but when we think about like how we like learn and consume and retain information, like everybody's a little bit different and really exploring that for yourself uh, can just be a huge advantage of like leaving those breadcrumb, breadcrumb trails of how you access information that you've tried to like stick in this mushy thing in your head. So like, uh, so that's just a very tight example of like very deliberately looking at how I was trying to accomplish a certain thing. What wasn't working? Like why wasn't that working? And what was a way I could try improving that? And for me, it was just swapping stuff. Like what I did when, um, and especially like getting out of school when you need to be more self-motivated, when you're doing your own projects and nobody's like threatening a grade at you for it, like you need to be better at that. And because when you get out of school, it's it's kind of a harder problem, right? Because you may or may not have more time, but what you don't have is somebody telling you to do it. Mm -hmm. And and that, I think, is the even greater challenge of that. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there's only so much you can do and when there's only so many hours in a day and frankly getting like a decent amount of sleep and everything is always going to improve things. And also at the end of the day, like you will get there in the end, like the tortoise and hare thing, you'll get there. And by not trying to like over push, you're just going to be happier in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think like when you have those kind of more balanced habits, but then you work on that time management, you work on how you kind of carve out those moments for yourself, uh, it's going to be easier to stick with that. It's going to be easier to have that be consistent, uh, a habit you keep coming back to. Because if I do spikes of like, oh, I crammed four hours late at night, Tuesday night, and like it was yeah, kind of questionably questionable quality of work I did uh, <laughs> versus like four hours, you know, over the week that I did consistently. Well, now we get to week two, like how many, how many weeks can I do these weird late night crunches versus like, I'm just consistently putting in that time and effort to do a thing. Mm -hmm. And then you get to levels of like, you know, what's, what's driving that particular experiment or project? What are you trying to solve? Writing down the questions you want to answer, I think, are super important. Trying to build your opus right off the bat, like, just throw that idea out the window. Like, come up with very specific things. Like, if there are a few games that are inspiring you, like, and that's just something you're excited about, then, like, pick little things from that and figure out what about that is is really inspiring you and, and interests you. And then just make a little thing with that. If it goes anywhere, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Like, that's fine. Let things run their course. And then when your brain says, okay, I've got what I can out of this, let's move on. Do that. Document stuff. Like uh, like I said, I do kind of a bullet journal. Like, things like that. Keep 
just keep track of your own process, not necessarily like for reference, but because even the act of doing that can be really helpful in just being kind of mindful of the work you're doing and why you're doing it. And did you answer that question? Did you figure out that thing? Uh, and if so, what's the next question you want to answer? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to slow down and do these things. And there will be days you can't. There, it's like I always hate that we're obsessed with this like 40-hour work week because it's, <laughs> it's not how people work. Mm -mm. There are days where I would get work done, like I'd get so much done in one day, like three days of, of equivalent stuff. Like I was way ahead of the schedule. And then there were days I was gone mentally, just couldn't do it. And I uh, like the places I ended up like spending more time working at, like agencies and stuff, were places that were like, your schedule's your own. Your job is to get the work done. So if you get the work done in two hours instead of eight, well, congratulations. <laughs> That's great. Now you can use the rest of that time to like be a healthier person and like not spin your wheels like trying to look busy or watching Netflix at work. I don't know. <laughs> For sure. So uh, you, I, I believe it says that you are planning on going back to uh, you know the the professional sector. Um, in nine months after you finish this academic year, what question do you have for yourself that you're looking to answer when you come <laughs> back? That's a good one. Uh, so yeah, this is interesting because this is, I've been in a three-year MFA program, one that I didn't intend on doing. I was pursued and offered the job to teach. And then after I accepted and after uh, my wife and I moved, I was told that, whoops, they made a mistake. I need to have a terminal <laughs> degree. They knew I didn't, and they specifically were approved to find somebody that didn't have one as long as they had enough industry experience. So basically, I had no choice but to like start this MFA, which like I've been making the best of, and they're paying for it, and that's awesome. But it's it's a weird situation to be in. Um, and I also like found out that because it was originally a tenure track position and even getting the MFA, you can't uh, like basically the policy at any university, at least in the States, is you cannot take a tenure track position at the university you got your terminal degree at, which means even oh, if no. I stay, I can't have that position. Um, and so I talked to the head of my department recently of, and basically we're kind of in that position of like me making the decision whether or not I'm going. And uh, I still need to talk to them. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's basically where I'm at right now where I'm kind of thinking that's the right thing. But uh, I need to actually tell them and make that official whether or not that's what's going on. Um, but, but I mean, they're very supportive and the whole thing's been kind of strange. But as I've been thinking about it, like, especially over the last, you know, few weeks, month, uh, there's just so much I want to do, like so many things that I want to be a part of and build that being here right now is not going to allow me to do. And I do like teaching. There's a lot of things I like about it. And uh, especially like in different circumstances, not being under the pressure of the MFA and everything. 
I, I think I could do even better than I've been doing. Um, but that's something that like I can always come back to as well. So, I mean, to answer that question of like, so if I'm, if I, if I am going to kind of go back out, what, what is the question I want to answer? And, and that, that is tough. Like I, I've been asking myself, like, what is it? Where do I want to be? What are the things I feel are missing? For mm -hmm. one, it's collaboration. I need to be working with other people, other designers. Uh, working solo is extremely difficult, and I process verbally, especially. So, um, being able to talk things out loud with other people is how I just hyper accelerate work mm -hmm. uh, and concepts. Um, I so much of my work is like physical electronic alternative kind of immersive stuff. Uh, and I like, I like the mix, uh, whether or not I like might end up doing pure digital stuff. Uh, I kind of want, want that mix of, of, of experiential work. So, um, I mean, I guess it just kind of means not, <laughs> not very straightforward games, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, or, or toys. Like, um, like I've been working on like weird simulations and and stuff like that, just because I find these systems very, very uh, compelling to try and like dissect and understand. Um, so I, I, I don't know necessarily what the, what the question is, but I know the, one of the questions I've had that I answered that was, uh, I think is really going to influence where I go, which is, what am I? What is my profession? What do I do? And for a long time, I identified as a software developer uh, because that's what I went to school for. Like, I, it just felt like that was a core part of my identity. I'm a coder. Like, I, this is this is what I can really do. Mm -hmm. uh, but all the the end point of all of the work that I've ever enjoyed doing is like design work. It's like that software, it's, it's technology, it's whatever in service of creating some piece of design work that people are interacting with in, in interesting ways. Uh, so like the software is, is a tool, um, mm -hmm. but I've never felt compelled to get to be like an expert in a particular area of that. Like I, I don't care if I really learn shaders, like I've used them in like in the TV game. Like I worked, I collaborated with a friend and he's very good at writing that kind of code. And I realized my desire to be able to write shaders to simulate these TV effects was only because I needed them. It wasn't because I actually cared about mm -hmm. understanding that thing. So like working with somebody that understood like what we were trying to build and could take care of that thing while I took care of these other things. I was like, oh, okay. So I want to be a really good coder simply because it would make my design work easier, not because I actually care about being really good at coding these different kinds of things. And I am a decent coder. Like, I, I think I probably, like, uh, undervalue, like, that part of what I do uh, or, or underestimate my capabilities there. But coming to the realization that it's like, no, I'm a designer. I'm a good designer. I'm a designer that works across like a variety of mediums and understands the big picture. Uh, I'm a designer that comes up with like ideas that other people aren't coming up with and can actually execute them. And 
that took me a lot longer to figure out than like it should have. <laughs> it really did. And I, I think identity is a tough thing because you don't want to give it up. You figure out who you are or what you want to be. And you really like hold fast to that. And that can be really good, except every once in a while, I think we do need to reevaluate. Like, why do I want to be this? Like, for students that say, I've wanted to be a game designer since I was four, I was like, that's a weird time to decide that. Like, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> like, and, and I've had some that, like, whether it was to be a game designer or not to be, when, like, they realized they hadn't actually asked themselves that question in quite a few years. And the answer had changed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, so, yeah, I mean, it. Part of it was, and part of this, like, I think big change I'm probably going to be doing is because I answered that question. Uh, and, and because now I can be in the process of formulating a new question. Um, and so I don't know necessarily what it'll be, but I, I've, I've been kind of working backwards on it of like, what are the things I don't want? Like, what are the things I am not interested in doing? Mm -hmm. uh, and even now... Yeah, even even with all the experience I have, like, I there's so much for me to learn depending on where I want to take my career and what I want to do next. Um, so I don't know. I I guess I'm I'm still figuring that one out, but but I mean that's kind of an exciting part of the process. I think is is trying to figure out, you know, the answer to what what you're questioning now, and then the question that you're going to answer next. <sighs> I love it. All right. So then uh, I guess just to kind of wrap everything up, um, do you have any projects that are in your mind right now that you want to uh, create when you, you come out, whether it's like the actual next project or it's just something you want to experiment with? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so like one of the things I have to do this year uh, is my thesis, my graduate thesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was really important to me that it's like that not just be kind of a, I don't know, throwaway thing. Like if I'm going to put this time into it, I want it to lead to something. Uh, and with the work I've been doing with escape room design. Um, so Utopia Room, uh, I would say, is uh, basically a generation two room. And like when a lot of people talk about uh, generations of escape rooms, it's generally like, Gen 1 is all physical stuff, all mechanical. Uh, Gen 1.5 might mean there's some kind of kind of uh, electronic or digital components to it, but they're discrete. Like if there's a digital lock or a digital keypad that opens a lock, but it's not talking to a grander system. It's just like, well, you put the keypad and opens the thing. Uh, and then Gen 2 is more like you've got a network running. You've got different components that are all talking to each other. There's some kind of state that's being tracked, like all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That's And that's a very difficult place for room escape designers right now. Because uh, again, like a lot of them don't have backgrounds in these areas, uh, which isn't their fault. Like it's like there's only so many things you can do in your life, I guess. But, uh, but it's an area like a lot of them want to be doing and so then you've got that challenge of finding people that have those expertise and people that do Arduino stuff. And 
And it's extra hard because these things have to be very robust, have to be maintainable, and people are absolutely destructive. Uh, so, so you really, really like gotta do it right because otherwise it'll be awesome for a week and then it's just nothing but problems. I mean, like hmm. basically the same kinds of stuff of like early theme parks where everything's constantly breaking. Um, <laughs> so one thing I've been talking about uh, for my thesis is building essentially an immersive design platform. So simplifying uh, the, the ways to create digital components on a network in a, an immersive space like an escape room and having a simple way for designers to uh, determine like how those things talk to each other and function. It's hard to, I think, explain in a very, very quick way, but uh, part of it is identifying the biggest problems that people have, which is how do you get all the things to communicate? Uh, and a wired network is a problem. Uh, and, you know, wireless networks are inherently like hard to trust. Uh, mm -hmm. And then power management is another big issue. But the idea of like developing a system that lowers the bar for designers to prototype immersive spaces like these uh, and build them out very reliably. Because uh, even with the one we built, like, it was about two months of work before I could even start building the technology. And the thing is, you have to design it all ahead of time. So I had to hope that like these ideas were going to work. I could do little bits of prototyping, but ultimately, like it was really hard to do unless everything was kind of ready to go. Um, so that's something that I've been uh, starting to dig into, and I think could have a lot of um, a lot of ways it could be utilized. Um, and it's Certainly. a space that I think it could really, really be helpful. For gamey stuff, um, I know I've, I've had a few prototypes that are kind of floating around that I'm trying to decide if I'll keep working on them. Uh, there's there's one that I'm, I mean, it's probably never going to get any bigger than it is, but it's just a fun one for festivals. It's Ghost Dentist VR, where it's basically <laughs> just self-dentistry in virtual reality with haptic feedback. So you it tracks your mouth, so it opens and closes just like your real one. And when you drill your teeth, it vibrates them. Um, yeah, it's super fun. Uh, and I don't know why I made that. We made that on Train Jam a few years back. But um, And there's another one, Dark Side of Balloon, mm -hmm. which there's a, there's a game jam demo of on darksideofballoon.com. And still, like, you know, I've had different ideas for that. And who knows if I'll get back to it or not. Wasn't that um, one also on Train Jam? Or yeah, actually it was. Yeah. That was that was this last year on Train Jam, yeah. Um I've the one I've been pouring the most energy right now is just simply an ant colony simulator. It's I I so as soon as mobile devices or, or like uh, iPhones and iPads came out, mm -hmm. I was running a mobile team at the time and my like the first idea that popped in my head is like, of course, an ant farm. Like you put your, you know, your phone or a tablet or whatever on a little stand and you just have an ant farm. And I thought that would just be the greatest thing ever. And still, like, however many years later now, nobody's built anything like that. And that just kind of boggles me because I think it would be a really, really cool toy. Um, so I started digging into it and reading lots of papers on ants and like because they're used a lot as, as uh, for like 
computing algorithms, stuff like that is like mm. how um, like you get this really intelligent emergent behavior from very simple uh, automatons. Yeah. Uh, and I found that nobody has really tried to simulate them on a kind of colony wide scale. Everybody always really? stops at like, look, you lay down pheromones and then they create paths and then they figure out where the food is and they know how to bring it back because of this and chemicals, which is great. And it's a very like, easy simple and yet like robust example of what they're capable of yeah but what happens like when you lay a bunch of ants on a pile of dirt like how do they decide where to dig where like how to dig out the the different chambers what the chambers are for uh how to maintain mm -hmm. them where the queen goes where does the brood go feeding there are all these little things and yet they still only have very localized information. So like, how is all that happening? And like, I've read dozens of papers now and, and have a much better understanding of it. And I'm still kind of blown away that nobody's simulated this, but also I kind of understand that it's such a like complex, like interweaving balanced system. Mm -hmm. And I, and I actually like, so, so that's basically what I've been digging into is like, I want to simulate that. I want to okay. I want to simulate the thing nobody has simulated before fully, uh, and so you could actually have an ant colony that you just sit and over months of time, like on your phone, just does its thing, but mm -hmm. does it without cheating? Does it without like you know having world knowledge that each ant shouldn't have stuff like that? Uh, and I found like these really interesting parallels between the way the the myriad of pheromones and like chemical cocktails they use uh, fits into a goal value system like GOP, uh, goal oriented action planning. Mm -hmm. uh, so like going beyond like state machines and to how they like decide what their goal is at any given moment based off, you know, the information they have available to them, deciding on the score for that and what the like the optimal way to achieve that is, but all while just using what's around them. Um, so it's a weird experiment. Like it basically, once the spring semester ended, I was so exhausted from things, I, I just had a hard stop of any project I was working on. I was like, mm -hmm. tired of these, I need to step away. And then this became my like brain vacation, <laughs> which has gotten like way deeper than I expected, but I'm also really enjoying it. And I have no idea what it's going to be for. Uh, like, will it be interactive? I don't know. Like, but right now it's such a fun experiment. And I think at the very least, at the minimum, if I had like this functioning thing, like people would be fascinated by it and like put it on an old phone and let it sit there. And maybe you can dig in a little and see information that, or see what's going on even if you can't change it just to like learn about that process and what's what's happening so yeah because like then it also becomes you know does does it only run while you have it open or are you able to you know put it in your pocket for a day and then come check up on the colony later and see how they the way out? the way i figured out for that which like i mean because there's a, there's a design choice to be made there but yeah I I lean towards it just continues without you. And basically what happens is when you leave the app, there's a timestamp when you open it, it just checks how much time has passed, 
and it very quickly, without rendering anything, runs through that number of steps. Hmm. And then that just brings it up to speed. Because uh, you, it's it's deterministic, so like yeah. you can just, especially if there are like even if there are ways to interact with it when it's technically off, the assumption is the simulation would be running kind of contained. So it certainly could work that way, where it just when you open it up, three hours have passed, and ants are just doing their thing. <laughs> but, but like getting something like that to work, I think opens up a lot of interesting interactive possibilities, uh, and and those are kind of fun to think about. But for me, it's just like, well, I'm gonna just tinker away on this until there's something worth showing, and then see where that takes me. I guess. Um, I mean. As a fallback plan, might I suggest making a phone case that is literally an ant farm? <laughs> oh, believe me, that was the first thing I thought of <laughs> years ago when, like, I, I originally thought about ant farms. I was like, and of course you just 3D print a case, and it would be green and really obnoxious and <laughs> look really great. But yeah, it's like, of course, it would have to be. I mean, I think about, because I, I originally was playing around with this on a, a micro screen a 96 by 96 pixel uh like kind of like a little e-ink style display um and then i just realized that i solving the simulation problems and solving how to fit it on a microcontroller were too interconnected and complicated so i've been working on it digitally and with the idea that once i kind of crack the code i can port it to a tiny standalone desk toy or something um, but yeah e either way like if, if I had something like that working I'd, it's like I know people at Kickstarter and stuff maybe do one of those like short run like kind of art artsy release things where it's like eh, I'm going to make 30 I'll 3D print 30 cases put a device in each one that's personalized like and 30 people can have it and see, see what happens um and I mean, could always then release it, release 3D printing plans or laser cut plans, and people can make their own little cute cases and go nuts. Huh. And then you're going to see the whole Labo thing where people start creating custom stuff. Yeah, why That's not? Rad. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, like, I'm not ready to talk about it yet, but there's, like, a, a project that... Uh, come up uh, I recently came up with a friend of mine where we're like ooh this would be both versatile compelling fun physical electronic sparkly and like high potential as a product if like costs could be contained <laughs> so like it's uh that could be fun but since I'm not saying anything about it it's probably not very interesting mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you'll eventually talk about it, so I'm excited exactly. to to see when it finally does get publicly released. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll build a prototype and start start bringing it around to some events. It's always the hope for like by GDC Alt Control or something. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Jerry. Um, yeah. If you want to stick around for a few minutes afterwards, that'd be appreciated. Sure. Um, all right. Thank you for listening to broadcast number 84 of Indie Radio. Indie Radio is broadcasted live with Twitch and recorded using open broadcaster software. If you enjoyed the show and are interested in more, you can visit our archive at IndieFunction.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Podcasts. Our next show is on August 24th with Marlau Dabi.
Thank you again for listening to Indie Radio, and we hope you have a fantastic weekend.